everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your host, Bridget Keys, And I'm your co-host, TJ West. And we are kicking off with the Season 2 premiere, which, epi- which episode is entitled Widow Weep for Me. TJ, you want to give us a quick summary of the episode? I will. So Jessica is summoned to an island paradise by a friend of hers who is afraid. And as it turns out, the poor friend has been murdered. And so Jessica has to discover exactly why this has been done. And in the process, she hobnobs with the wealthy that have inhabited this island, meets a fabulous inspector, and has to discover exactly who it is that's murdering wealthy widows for their jewelry. So it's very, very Agatha Christie-esque, I think, and features some great wardrobe choices, which I will gush about, and also an embarrassment of riches when it comes to guest stars. Yeah, it's a great way to start off season two because it's got everything we've come to expect and love about the series. Well, let's start with the guest stars. So we have uh, Mary Wicks, who plays a woman who only has one scene and then she gets murdered. Uh, TG, you were really excited about Sid Charisse. I was, yes. Um, obviously, as a devout follower of classic Hollywood, it's always exciting to see the icons of that period appear in Murder, She Wrote, as they do with some regularity. And of course, many viewers of the time would have been familiar with her work in classic Hollywood, particularly in musicals and for her dance work. So it was really quite exciting, even if she only appears very briefly and doesn't have a huge role to play. But it was still nice to see her, especially the moment where she greets Jessica and is like, you might know me from my former career in movies, which I thought was a lovely little, you know, sly nod to her own screen persona. Yeah, so she's probably, most people would have known her from Singing in the Rain. And Mary Wicks, I think most contemporary listeners probably know her from Sister Act. But of course, she had a long and storied career before that. Yeah, I mean, she was a now Voyager. She was in a number of, often playing sort of, not battle acts exactly, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, she has this sort of stern quippy kind of persona that she cultivated as like a you know a character actress in Hollywood and then obviously did a lot of TV shows. I remember seeing her in MASH um, during reruns when I was a kid and she also played the voice of one of the gargoyles in The Hunchback of Notre Dame so that was her last role actually. And um, she was the ballet mistress in that iconic episode of I Love Lucy. I mean all episodes of I Love Lucy are iconic but the episode where Lucy's trying to learn ballet and it's there's just so much physical comedy, on bar, on bar, and she's falling over the bar and she has no idea what she's saying and she's repeating what the ballet mistress is telling her in French. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. And um, Mary Wicks was the ballet mistress. She was also in White Christmas, um, which is, it should be everyone's favorite Christmas movie. And uh, Sister Act 2, because there can't just be one Sister Act. So her her actual her professional biography um, describes her as having a career as a salty steen sealer, which I thought was lovely. And although she only has one episode in this as a rich woman gambling at a casino um, before she's murdered, she actually you know really does catch your attention as a viewer. Yes, I mean, and it's you know in large part because of just her delivery. Like she just is one of those people who knows how to dominate a scene even if it's just for a few moments and i love that's what i've always loved about her as an actress we also have in this episode howard hessman um so he actually just recently died um this year but he was most recently at the time of this episode known for wkrp um where he played johnny fever and um this is actually murder she wrote's fourth episode with a wpr wkrp cast member um, he'll go on to do a sitcom called Head of the Class 
next season. Teach, did you watch that or were you too young? Do you remember Head of the Class? I was too young. Head of the Class was one of those formative TV shows for me. And he plays a teacher who, you know, kind of doesn't play by the rules. But ultimately, he's teaching the kids about life. And I remember learning so much from it. I learned about musicals. I learned about the Vietnam War. I learned about Nixon and Watergate. I mean, it was actually a really great show. You learn learn about about life. life. And then finally... And then finally, we have um, probably our most important guest star. Well, we have Mel Ferrer. We should talk about him, too. Mm-hmm. Another big name. But we also have Len Carew making his debut appearance as Michael Haggerty, the spy, former MI5 agent, um, somebody we can never really trust to know exactly who he is and what he does. And this is his first episode as that character. And I, what did you think about him? Like, I, I... Boy, you are not picking up any of my cues today. Like... You don't want to say anything no, about him? No, I was going to say, what do you think about him? Because I, I found him charming, but I also wasn't sure how I felt about him, just as a character. Because, um, I mean, obviously, they're kind of playing on a little bit of the romantic tension between him and Jessica, but I'm not sure if I was buying it. And I'm not sure if that's overdetermined by his appearance in Blue Bloods, which is, like, his most recent, like, high-profile work. Yeah, 255 episodes. Can you believe that? Yeah, so maybe that's overdetermining my reading of this character uh, or I just I don't know I didn't like him as much as some of Jessica's other quasi bows that we've seen so far he just seems a little too confident so he's actually 14 years younger than Lansbury if you can believe that um, and I think you're right the character was brought on to provide a little bit of intrigue and maybe even romantic intrigue for Jessica's life and he'll end up being in a total of seven episodes and I I think they become some of the most memorable of murders she wrote. I mean, people really remember her playing off of Harry McGraw and later Dennis Stanton and Michael Haggerty, just because otherwise it's a one-person, you know, main cast. Mm -hmm. This is not, I don't think, the best episode for the character, although I certainly think that enough seeds were planted that it becomes really interesting to have him come back. Because we know he lies, but we know he's ultimately Mm -hmm. honorable. Um, right. We know he cares about Jessica and looks out for her, even as she's aware she can't totally trust him. So I think it really does set up a nice relationship for that will continue in the future. Right. Because it's interesting then, you know, because the final shot, uh, you know, in tr- typical Murder, She Wrote fashion um, is lighthearted. And he like kisses her hand in a very, you know, debonair, gentlemanly, almost chivalrous way, which admittedly is a nice little gesture. Uh, even as I'm like, OK, go away now. Jessica doesn't need you anymore. <laughs> Yeah, him kissing her hand and promising to visit, right? So it really does leave it open that we know this character is going to come back. Right. But we should say what actually happens in this episode, Tish. We should. (laughs) So as I said, as I alluded to at the top, like it is a series of murders of basically wealthy widows. Like that's the gist of it. But then nested in that, there's also some sort of, uh, how do we want to call it, like family melodrama because as it turns out jessica's friend had an illegitimate daughter who she invited to the island basically to meet her because her wealthy magnite father started to feel guilty about forcing her to disown said daughter after their marriage was annulled so it's that's that i found to be a very interesting like little family melodrama plot nestled inside of the of the murder and the daughter doesn't know that's what this is so she thinks she's won a vacation in a supermarket sweepstake um, because she's an innocent youngin from Davenport, Iowa, as the episode tells us multiple times. Right. So I have a question and maybe you can give me some explanation. Like, how is it that a, because her, because 
the murder victim's father is like a, a wine magnate or something like he's a you know a, a very powerful european person right isn't am i recalling this correctly yeah so how does the illegitimate daughter of a wine of a magnate's daughter end up in iowa like that's just an interesting you know because she was given up for adoption sure i know but i mean it just seems rather random to end up in iowa of all places where should she end up i don't know like boston new york city like something like that i don't know it just seems it's just a a lovely little uh conceit that it ends up in iowa of all places just to add to the yeah. innocence aspect, well, I, I suppose. I, yeah, I mean, I think they were reaching for, like, what's the most wholesome Americana place, you know, and we'll grab from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And then she's a school teacher on top of it. So it's extra, you know, like, she's so sheltered and, and you know, not wealthy and just uh-huh. removed from this world. And so she thinks she's won this vacation. She comes to this tropical island. It's amazing. She befriends this old lady who ends up getting murdered. She falls in love with this guy named Sven Torvald, who's European. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's a really big adventure for this young woman, Veronica. And we should say that she's played by Anne Lockhart, who we last saw in the episode Deadly Lady as one of the murderous daughters. Yeah. And she's June Lockhart's daughter, so. Yes. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's another, you know, connection to old periods of Hollywood for you. So let's talk then about the fashion, because that was the one thing that stood out to me from the very first moments that we are introduced to this episode. Because when the episode begins, Jessica's in disguise. Like, she comes to the island. Wait, why are you giving me that look? We still haven't even, like, said what happens in the episode. We, okay, we, did, we, we talked about how, like, we, we want to talk about the the actual, like, solving of the crime. Like, because we talked about that multiple old ladies are murdered. What do we want to say other than that? <laughs> It's fine. We'll talk about the fashion. Yeah. But we didn't even explain that Jessica comes to the island masquerading as Marguerite Canfield. So it's just a little bit confusing. That's all. Okay. Do you want me to resume what I was saying or just start over what I was saying? This is why I want there to be outlines. It would be a lot easier if there were outlines. Yes, we should. I do agree. We should start doing that. So let's talk a little bit about fashion and we can use that to elaborate on some of what happens in this episode. So when the episode begins, Jessica is coming to the island incognito to investigate as a result of her friend having sent this letter so she comes to the island you know as this sort of glamorous figure and i was immediately struck by how effortlessly jessica can transition between like you know the usual cabot cove kind of couture if you will to this definitely like highbrow hair swept up in this you know um what do we call those things um what are they called help me Hairpin, yeah. So, you know, and turban. Turban, yes, thank you. And, you know, has this long flowing outfit and the imperiousness with which she treats the, you know, the staff. It's just, it's peak Angela Lansbury, just another indication of how extraordinary of a talent she is that she can play Jessica playing this character and do it so convincingly. Yeah, so just to add a little bit of more sartorial details here, it's a lavender suit um, with a cape. And then a matching lavender turban. And then she's just decked out in pearls in this first moment. Um, And, you know, she makes cracks about how she's never liked Napoleon Bonaparte. And um, Sid Charisse playing like the hotel, you know, I guess hospitality agent or something says, I hope you'll enjoy your stay. And she says, well, of course I will. Otherwise, it'll be a short visit, you know. So she's just having so much fun with this character that is so different than Jessica. 
And I think we need to remember that this is the start of season two. So there's been a hiatus during which, you know, the show gets sort of evaluated and they decide what they want to do for season one. And a couple of things came up at that point. Um, First of all, Lansbury, uh, according to Peter Fisher, the executive producer, Lansbury felt like she looked, um, she was not satisfied with how she looked in season one. So she went on like a really rigorous diet and and she also insisted that the clothing become better because she felt like the series started when Jessica was just a retired school teacher, but now she's a millionaire and she's really famous. And so she thought her wardrobe should be a little more expensive. Obviously, that gets amped up in this episode because she's masquerading as a wealthy woman trying to attract attention to herself, but um, so that someone might rob her and she might figure out what's going on with these jewel thieves, but but it's, uh, I think it's indicative of how the series is sort of changing a little bit to reflect like Jessica's growth in the world. Yeah. And I mean, so two things. One, I appreciate these little, uh, not little, but these extensive like research dives that Bridget does. Like, I feel like that adds texture to our analysis and I appreciate that. And I want her to know that I appreciate that. Um, but secondly, I do think that it adds another layer of complexity, even to Jessica's character that she is, you know, as you say, evolving and changing as she becomes more comfortable as a wealthy person rather than just the, you know, the widow from Cabot Cove. Like she's becoming a more, more sure of herself as she moves through the world. And we see that represent, you know, in in part, at least through her clothing choices, just even if it's just a masquerade, there is still a certainty with which she now moves through the world that I appreciate. Yeah. This is also, you know, Lansbury hasn't done a long running stint on television before. And this gave us a chance, gave us like I was on the production team, it gave them a chance to sort of evaluate how she felt about that. And, you know, she, she really felt like she loved the series. The series was tremendously popular. I mean, by the end of season one, apparently it's being watched regularly in the White House. You know, so it's obviously, it's a very popular, very well-loved show, but the character of Jessica herself is actually not really much of a stretch for Lansbury as an actor, because partly because of all the stuff we've talked about, right? Like, Jessica's an everywoman, so she's not a particularly flamboyant character, or she's not very, you know, super emotional, nothing that would really stretch an actor. Um, and so they decided in season two to start having more episodes like this, where Jessica goes undercover or masquerades. Um, eventually playing her own identical cousin so that Lansbury would get more of opportunities to show us her range as an actor. And I love what she does with Marguerite Canfield. I think it's just great. And I love the name too. It's very much of a piece with the kind, Marguerite Canfield is the type of name one would associate with a wealthy widow going to a remote island to, you know, to gamble and live it up in her, you know, in her twilight years. And it is actually a real person within this universe. Right. Because part of what Michael Haggerty does is corner Jessica and sort of call her out because Marguerite Canfield's a famous recluse and he's actually met her. Um, so Jessica was counting on the fact that because she was reclusive, people wouldn't know what she looked like. But unfortunately, he'd met her and he knew she wasn't she wasn't it. Mm-hmm. Which was nice, which is a nice little twist to the end. That wasn't Michael. That wasn't Michael at all. Oh, I said, which was a nice little twist. That's all I said. Wait, what? Can you repeat whatever you said? I just said it was a nice little twist. That's all I said. No, before that, what did you say? I don't remember now. (laughs) I mean, the other thing is I don't really understand how Jessica thinks she can go at this point anywhere in the world undercover because her photo is literally on her books and we're told that at this point she has six books and we'll, we'll learn that in the next episode. Um, and that she's a best-selling author. So 
How does she think she's going to get away with just like putting her hair up and no one will know who she is? Right. Well, I mean, isn't that what Howard Hesman's character says? He's like, I, dude, I recognize you from your book cover. Like, <laughs> I mean, she's, as you say, she's like, doesn't even hold it up yeah. and like shows like, here it is right here. That's you. <laughs> Which I mean, I, you know, it's kind of funny because it becomes a shtick in the series because then there's a later episode where she's literally holding up her book cover showing people who don't believe that she is the woman on the cover. So it's sort of an ongoing joke in the series of who is Jessica Fletcher anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I found this to be a very, like, it's a lighthearted episode, but there's also like a hint of darkness in it, which I think is, you know, a skillful thing that Murder, She Wrote uh, uses quite frequently. Like, I mean, we're talking about like older women being murdered. Like, I mean, that's a pretty dark subject, even though, of course, there's, it's balanced by her, you know, her rapport with the other characters. But, you know, there's something particularly, I don't know, at least for me, maybe poignant about older ladies getting murdered by someone unscrupulous who wants their money or wants their jewels in this case. I think it's portrayed really interestingly, too. Um, when we see Antoinette writing Jessica a letter, um, and by the way, we now know that Jessica's address is RFD3 Cabot Cove, Maine. But um, as someone, we see someone holding up the knife to stab her, she screams and it cuts to rocky ocean cliffs with the spray coming off the water. And um, it's it, it, it's such a visceral cut of putting those two images together. So we don't see any blood spray. We don't see any like actual gore, um, but it's represented by the ocean spray and the sound and the fury of the ocean. And I just quoted Faulkner there and I didn't mean to, but um, there's something about that that is, it's not usually how Murder, She Wrote is edited. So it struck me as being kind of really sort of dark and, and attention grabbing. But the later murder isn't really like that. It's um, we don't. It happens off scene. We don't even see it, right? We just hear about it. Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting choice. And first of all, I mean, I I agree with you one hundred percent on the, the as you say the the sound and fury of of the of the nature, which you know is a really interesting stylistic choice at this point in the show to take. But then, as you say, it's juxtaposed so sharply with the second murder of Mary Wicks's character, which doesn't, you know, have really much weight to it at all, which I think is an interesting choice stylistically, but also narratively. Like why, like, especially since we actually get to spend at least a little bit of time, we actually get to hear her speak. So it's all the more interesting that she's kind of just like shoved off so quickly, especially given that it's Mary Wicks. Like one would have expected her to at least get a a nice send off. But alas, we do not get that. I'm actually just a little bit confused as to why anybody's being murdered in the first place. Like, can't we just steal their jewels? I mean, so that is maybe the... So we're so so we should explain for people who haven't seen the episode in a bit, you know, so so we have the jewel thieves, the jewel thefts happening in the hotel. At the same time, we have these murders happening in the hotel. Um, and so we're we're wondering if they're connected and how they're connected. Um like Jessica's purse even gets stolen at one point. I mean, there's just a lot of theft. And I guess I don't understand if if the we're led to believe that perhaps the murder has something to do with Antoinette's daughter, Veronica, and that whole secret subplot. But of course, it doesn't in the end. And I, I actually think that would have been a better story because why is the hotel security manager, why does he need to kill guests to steal their stuff? Because wouldn't that just attract a lot more attention to his theft? That was my thought, too. And then he's going to try, like, he, because when they confront him, because Jessica does it, obviously, with, um, with Haggerty as well as, um, the inspector. Well, first it's just Jessica and Haggerty, and then the inspector shows up. But it's, he's, like, reaching for his gun when there are literally two people standing right there in his doorway. 
And it's like, what are you going to do? Shoot them and then have to cover up two more murders after you've already killed like several old ladies? Like, I, like what exactly are you planning on like doing here, dude? Like, I know you've got like a million dollars worth of jewels, but seriously, I mean, this is, uh, you know, you're not thinking very rationally. No, he's not at all. And I think this is another example of where I feel very disappointed in the criminals in this series because they never do their jobs very well. So if I worked at a hotel that had elite guests with millions of dollars and jewels and security holdings that they some for some reason brought with them on vacation and put in the safe deposit box, um, I think I would get really good at like siphoning off just a little from each guest so that nobody really noticed. And then over the course of multiple guests, you would get rich and, and no one would notice, right? But if you kill someone and take all of their money and there's a dead body, like, of course, people are going to notice that you're doing something bad. Yeah. Does it make any yeah, sense? it's like, just seduce the old lady like everybody else in every other show or movie that's ever been made about this subject. Like, just cozy up to them and, like, get them to sign away their fortune. Like, it's much cleaner and less yes. messy than, than, you know, stabbing them. I didn't even think about that. You're totally right. Because, you know, we have a hint about that, too. So we learned that Sven knew Antoinette in the Alps. And that Antoinette had fallen in love with him. But he, of course, is diabolical and figures out... This part also doesn't make sense to me. He figured out that um, she she told all her secrets to him. So he learned about Veronica. So he's going to marry Veronica so that when Antoinette dies, he can get Antoinette's fortune via his marriage to Veronica, which, of course, Jessica thinks for a moment might mean that he killed Antoinette and that he might also want to kill Veronica after they're married. Um, but he's not a murderer at all. And if he's not a murderer at all, then why didn't he just marry Antoinette? Why does he have to chase down her daughter? Yes. I, too, was like, what What exactly? <laughs> I mean, so I, I, you know, we've talked about this on this podcast before. And I do think that as so often is the case with Murder, She Wrote, the way it gets away with, uh, you know, with these narratives that don't really stand up to much scrutiny is, as we've pointed out before, like, this, the pleasure of the whodunit is enough to keep people tuning in. Yes. But I also just yes. think it's another one of those cases where the performances and the guest appearances are provide enough i don't know maybe smoke and mirrors or whatever to distract you from the fact that this doesn't really make a whole lot of like yes rational sense which i mean there's a brilliance there if you you know if you think about it that way like it's it's to the show's credit that it's able to like seduce us as viewers to just kind of go along for the ride except whenever we kind of like apply a little bit of an analytical pressure as we do here at Cabot Coke is that and then it's like hmm this doesn't really quite add up like it should like as you say like why doesn't Thorvald just marry Antoinette like why go through all the if they were they were in love we're told that they had a love affair in this Alps ranch and then he then leaves her but comes to the island to make sure he gets a chance to meet Veronica to marry right. Veronica yeah, it's the case where the subplot ends up becoming more, like, as you said earlier, it's more interesting, but it also adds complications that don't really make a whole lot of sense, even in their own terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was like, I don't know, she's kind of old. And if there's somebody younger, more attractive, maybe I'll go for that instead. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he wanted something sick with both of them. I don't know. His last name was Torvald. Did you pick up on that? I did. And, of course, that makes me think of... Uh, Rear window. Rear window. Yep. That was exactly what I thought too. I was like, that can't not be deliberate. Like if you're doing a murder mystery and you're having a character named Torvald, I can't think that that is not 
an explicit Because I've never heard allusion. that nickname except from in Rear Window. So um, will you quickly explain to people who Thorwald is in Rear Window? Okay, so if you haven't seen Rear Window, it's from uh, the 1950s from Alfred Hitchcock in which Jimmy Stewart's character is in, uh, incapacitated because of an injury and he uses his te- his camera and his telescope to like spy on the neighbors across the way from his apartment and he witnesses what he believes is a murder and a whole thing happens and then the character in question who's been doing the murdering, Thorvald, who was played by, I almost said Perry Mason, that's not right. Uh, I mean it is, but what? <laughs> uh, Raymond Burr. <laughs> realizes he's been spied on and comes Just call him Perry Mason and, come, and realizes he's been spied on and comes and tries to kill Jimmy Stewart so that's the the illusion yeah so there's something about that name that's like really sinister is, right yeah. and about like specifically killing your wife which is probably why I mean Jessica knows Hitchcock movies that's probably why she was you know her radar was pinged too right and it also has that layer of sinister Europeanness, I think too that helps to add that layer because he's a you know mm-hmm. he's a european playboy um which is you know a stock character in yes. many of these kinds of narratives so it makes sense that it also like it has a whole kind of connotative complexity to it that i really appreciate yes so um before we run out of time teach we should talk a little bit about the actual um investigators in this because we actually have three and it occurs to me we haven't mentioned the most important one um but so we have the hotel security guard shelton greenberg played by Howard Hussman. I don't know what the hell accent he's attempting to do in this episode. Um, And then, of course, he turns out to be the bad guy. Then we have Michael Haggerty, who tells us he was hired by Antoinette's father to check on her and the daughter, uh, which may or may not be true. Yeah. And then we also have the island police officer, who we haven't mentioned, whose name is Claude Rensler. He's played by Raymond St. James, who... And he always carries a cane for some reason. Oh, I love that character, though. Like, literally carries it. He carries it, like, at Uh his chest. It's a weird choice. It is. Uh, It's a little affectation, perhaps, you know. It's something that Poirot would do, it seems like, you know. (laughs) But I also... I, I, I really loved this character. I loved everything about him. I loved the mellifluous tone of his voice. I liked the rapport he has with Jessica. Um... And, you know, he wasn't as antagonistic as we've seen some other law enforcement people be with her. In fact, he seems to sort of welcome her involvement with the investigation. And so I really just kind of appreciated their rapport, which wasn't as developed as as hers was with Haggerty, but I think nevertheless was a nice little grace note to the show that I almost forgot to use my catchphrase. We don't need to continue that into season two. We should also mention that he's the lone character of color. I mean, this is set on... An island. It's an unnamed island in the Caribbean. Uh, it's quite strangely only populated with white people and one black man, Claude Rensler. But I also agree with you about his performance. I had to go like hunt through his IMDb page because I was like, this guy must be so famous, right? He, there's something about him that just he carried so much gravitas. I just assumed he was some big famous person. And it looks like he actually had very steady work as an actor, but hasn't done anything that would have made him a breakout star. Am I right on that? Yeah, I also had that impression as well as I was watching it, because I was like, he seems so familiar. And it finally did, I, I finally discovered what it was. He reminds me of the, of the sort of uh, the guy who plays in the Bond film that's set in Jamaica, like the bad guy in that film. I can't recall his name right off the top of my head, but he also did commercials for 7-Up in the 80s. He has that similar kind of like deep 
as you say, gravitas kind of voice. And that's who it reminded me of. And so I think that's what I'm, at least for me, that's the inner text that gave me that feeling. No Time to Die? Uh, what is it? What is it? I can't remember. I'll have to look. Like in 2021? I just looked this up last night, but of course I didn't remember. Dr. No? Hold on. 1962, Sean Connery, Ursula Andress, Jack Lord, that one? Quarrel? John Kitzmiller? Jeffrey Holder is the name of the actor. Live and Let Die, that's the one. Okay, will you do it again and say the James Bond movie and say his name? Okay, so I'll start where I said, well, for me at least, like what... whom he reminded me of was Jeffrey Holder from Live and Let Die, the James Bond film. Um, And also he did a number of 7-Up commercials in the 80s. And so they both have a similar timbre of voice. But he does remind me because he has that similar, as you say, gravitas, but also has that way of delivering his lines that reminded me it was an evocative of that, of Jeffrey Holder. That's really funny because I feel like I um, am really good at remembering all commercials from the 80s and I don't remember this at all. But also, I just want to point out that, like, I think it's really interesting that you said, how did you say it? Tomber instead of timbre. It's mm. really interesting. Well, you pronounce words really interestingly to me. Like lawyer. <laughs> lawyer, that one. There's a couple of others I've caught, too, when I re-listen to our podcast and I'm like, oh, that's bizarre. It's a West Virginian thing, I think. Yeah, or yeah, and specifically Pittsburgh, because my family is from near Pittsburgh, which has its own vernacular. Mm. I don't know where to go with that. I don't know how that was connected to anything with our episode, but it was an interesting observation for me. So, yeah. So I think this is a really fun way to kick off season two. I think it sets a really nice tone. This is going to be a jet setting episode. This is going to be an episode where Jessica gets more deeply involved with investigations. She's willing to put herself into them. You know, portraying these characters, um, we've got the Michael Haggerty piece, so we know there's going to be some recurring characters coming back, providing some interest. I think it's a it's a stellar start to the second season in my eyes. Oh, I know, me too. I mean, from the minute Jessica showed up in that outfit, I was like, I'm going to love this episode. I'm just, I knew it, and as soon as I saw the cast list, I was like, okay, I'm on board. I will, I will gladly. And just the way she walks into the hotel with the cape flowing behind her, like just, you know. Yep. I mean, it's just one of those moments. Young man, take my bags. Ugh, ugh. I mean, it's one of those moments that reminds us of the Lansbury of old, that this is the woman who, you know, got her start playing in Gaslight, played, a, you know, a Philistine princess and DeMille Samson and Delilah that played Mrs. Islin. You know, we get this, who plays Mame. Like, we get these moments that are evocative of our earlier, you know, outings. And I really appreciate that Marta Shiro lets us have that. Yes, the Lansbury before uh, murder, she wrote, sort of solidified her as this cozy grandmotherly sleuth type, right? Um, Mrs. Lovett, <laughs> which, yep. you know, Len Carew, I don't think we said, was in Sweeney Todd with her. So they have that connection. But yeah, it's really showing her range as an actor and reminding us that um, while Jessica Fletcher might be fluffy and sweet, though intelligent, uh, Lansbury is dynamic. And formidable. Yeah. I love it. So that's probably a good place to wrap up for now, but we'll be back very soon with Season 2, Episode 2. But for now, um, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And he's TJ West. And we'll catch you next time. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.